We're going to be in First uh, Samuel chapter 22. We'll just pray. Lord, oh Lord, we're just so thankful for your word, how it brings life to us, Lord, how it aligns our, our hearts and our minds, Lord, with yours, how it, it changes our understanding of what we're going through and what we're dealing with in this life, God. We're thankful for it. It's an anchor. It's health and life. It's alive. Uh, you speak to us, Lord. And we're so thankful for your desire to meet with us here this morning and to speak to our hearts, Lord. We all come in from different places uh, with, with different burdens and things we're going through, Lord, and you know how to speak to every single one of them. We thank you for that, Lord, your ability, your willingness, your desire uh, to just meet with us and sit with us this morning, God. We thank you for that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Last chapter, we see David. He, he flees to Nob, the, the, the city of the priests, where the, where the tabernacle is. And, and David gets a sword there. David gets food there. Uh, we see that Abimelech probably prays for David there. And then we see David goes from there, takes his sword, and goes to Gath with Goliath's sword and has to pretend he's mad. Uh, unfortunately, what David did, we're going to have to remember this, that David, when he was in Nob, he lies. He thought he wasn't hurting anyone with that lie. He thought, you know, who could it hurt? It's self-preservation. And, and David lies, and he has no idea the, the repercussions from that lie. Uh, and, and, and so we pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 22, after David flees Gath, it says, and therefore David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So David leaves. This, this guy uh, leaves Gath and he goes to Adullam. He goes to a cave. He goes to a place that every single one of us here have to go to learn lessons. We have to go end up in this cave, right? Uh, Elijah had to learn lessons in the cave where, where he kills all the, 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 the priests uh, uh, and of the false gods. And Elijah runs and, and hides in a cave when, when Jezebel threatens his life. And God meets him there. It wasn't in the, the lightning or the storm, the thunder, you know, the earthquake, but God meets him in a still small voice. And speaks to him and, and ministers to him. And, and, and that's what God does. Sometimes it takes the storm for us to learn lessons. Peter didn't learn a lesson until he walked out on that water, reaching his hand out to Jesus. You know, can I come to you, Lord? And Jesus says, yeah, come, Peter. And Peter steps out on the water and he gets his eyes off the Lord and gets him on the storm and, and he starts to sink. And sometimes that's our life. And we, you can't learn that lesson. You can. We read about it in Peter's life. We read that he starts to sink when he gets his eyes off the Lord. But when we're in the storm, when you're in the storm, when I'm in the storm, when things are, the waves are raging and things are happening, when you can see the Lord and you're walking to him, and then the waves start to hit you and they're crashing and they're crashing, and then you, re, and then you take your eyes off the Lord and you start to sink. And you just cry out for help, and the Lord reaches his hand out and lifts you up. That's where the lessons are learned. And, and many times for us, the lesson is here. 
We know the Bible, but God wants to bring it here. He wants us to learn these lessons personally in our own lives, right? And that's what's going on in David's life. He's learning lessons that he can only learn in the cave. It becomes his sanctuary. He, re- he writes Psalm 57 and 142, and it's where he writes in both of those Psalms that the Lord is my refuge, right? It's not in anything else. He realizes as everything else is stripped from him, his friends, his family, we read that God is going to reassemble his kingdom here, this thing that God is doing in David's life. But, but it's at that time where David's all alone in the cave, and it says he cried out to the Lord. He's probably screaming, Lord, what's going on? What I'm looking at in my life is so much different than what you told me. What I'm going through in my life looks so much different than what you promised when Samuel came and anointed me with oil and said, you're the next king of Israel. Why does this look so different, God? And, he, and the two, he can't put the two together until he real, realizes God is doing a work and he's more concerned with making a king than putting David on the throne to be a king. He's just as concerned with what he's doing in your life is what he's going to do with your life. That's the process. The process is you first and me first. And he's working in the heart of David, in the life of David. And so many times the lessons are learned in a cave, in a place where it's just you and the Lord, where there's no one else and nothing else you can reach out to. You're standing in the water. The storm's there. It's raging. The boat's too far away. The water's rising. And all you can do is reach out to the Lord. Lord, help. And he's right there. He's right there. And David is going to realize that. If you read Psalm 57, write it down. Psalm 142, vital. Vital in the life of David. So many Psalms are written in this period of David's life where he's on the run from Saul. So many lessons are learned as God is forming a king. He's making a man. He's making David into what he should become and who he's going to be for God's kingdom and for his glory. And, and so what we see here is, is God is assembling people again in David's life. As he's in the cave of Adullam, it says his brothers and his father's house, all his father's house, heard it and they went down there to him so so god is a god of restoration too god is restoring i love fixing things some things i can't fix there's a car at my house that's i'm mowing around right now right uh my we're we're camping in the thousand islands and i replaced this little inverter converter in my camper and i must have fried it again so we're up in the thousand islands without power um, so, and I'm, I'm like, where can I buy one working? You know, I bought my last one on Amazon and it's up a hundred dollars. Thankfully now they're another hundred dollars from 160 to 260. But that's a shocker, right? So, but, but I want to fix it, but God is into fixing people, fixing, healing relationships, friendships, marriages. God wants to fix those things. You remember David's brother, like mocking him. What are you doing here? You're just coming to see this battle, man. You're just a, a lousy shepherd, David. You have just a few sheep in the field. What are you doing here? And he's mocking him. 
accusing him of having the wrong heart there on the battlefield. Right? And here comes all his brothers. God wants to restore things. He's into restoring things. You know, Ephesians says that he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. God, listen, God wants to restore things, things that are broken. That's what Joel says, right? Joel says that he restores the years. Listen to these, these, these are the, the, uh, the locusts, the different kind of locusts, the swarming locusts, the crawling locusts, the chewing locusts, and the consuming locusts. God tells Joel, listen, I want to restore the years that all those different locusts have eaten in your life that have been destroying things in your life for years. Maybe your attitude, maybe your spouse's attitude, maybe your kids, maybe a family member, something God says, you know, all these different locusts. And if you, if you look on the news, that, you know, they're, they're, they pop up every once in a while, these different kinds. I just saw one, I think it was out west. These locusts were, were traveling, and they were the, the, the non-flying kind. These things were traveling across and eating everything in their path. And that's what locusts do. They destroy. They destroy things. They wreck things. They eat the things that have life and health. And there's things out there that want to destroy the life, your life, your health, the health of relationships. And God begins to restore these relationships and puts them back together and brings them right to this cave with, da with David, right? How, how does God restore them? It's through brokenness humility, having a heart of love and forgiveness. It's the only way. It's the only way God can forgive and restore those things, right? If you remember Zacchaeus, he's up in the trees trying to see Jesus. And he's up there, and Jesus looks at him and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm eating at your house today. I'm going to your house. And Zacchaeus comes down, and, and God transforms this guy's life Right? You remember singing the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? That guy. And God transforms his life, and he's like, I'm going to restore things that I owe to people. I'm going to fix what I broke. He looks back at his life and says, this was my fault. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to heal it. And that's the heart we need to have if you want to fix something. You can't wait for someone else to say, man, it's your fault. You did that. You did. No. Zacchaeus is like, I did it. I'm going to fix this. I'm gonna, I want to restore this thing. He saw what he did wrong, and he went to the people that he, that he overtaxed and, and, and ripped off, and he says, you know what? I want to fix this. If you're never willing to do that, good luck trying to get something fixed. If you're not willing to say, man, I messed this up, if it's all on the other person, it's your fault. You're never going to get it fixed. It's never going to be right. When John the Baptist, you know, all these people were coming to John the Baptist, and he says, bring forth fruit that's fitting for repentance. And all these guys, tax collectors, are like, what should I do? Well, don't exact more taxes than people owe. Quit doing that, right? The, 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 and, the, and the guards came to him, the Roman guards. Hey, what do we have to do? Well, Listen, quit roughing people up. Be happy with your wages. You know, quit, you know, listen, there should be a change of life 
a change of lifestyle. When God touches your heart and your life, your life is now transformed and you want to make things right with people. You can't stand being at odds. You want to fix it. And that's what God's doing for David. He's fixing things. He's beginning to fix relationships. And he brings his parents and his brothers, his family to this cave, right? This, this David's a caveman right now. It's a, and it's a lesson we all have to go through. Something we all have to deal with. Time in the cave. God teaches us so much. We don't, you know, we don't learn when we're on the mountaintop so often. We, you know, we're on the mountaintop. We all want to be there. We want to see Jesus transfigured like Peter. Like, Lord, this is amazing. But we're not learning there, usually. It's when we're in the valley, when things are hard, that we've got nothing else to reach to. And then it says this in verse 2. We're going to camp here just for a minute because I think there's a lot of lessons in here for us. It says, And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. So now his family comes, and now these 400 guys show up. And, and, and here's their resume. They're discontent, in debt, and in distress. David, I want to sign up for your army. Got some baggage here with me, uh, but I'm ready. I'm ready for the front line, right? We, we, we're, we're camping in the Thousand Islands. I've been going back and forth a little bit, but my family's there. Where there's a lot of people in the Thousand Islands right now. Um, and my kids like to play volleyball. So we have a volleyball net set up. And there's probably, you know, I don't know, 20 of us there playing volleyball, 15, 16, I don't know. And one of the times, you know, we've played tons of games. But one of the times I made the mistake and I felt terrible, somebody says, all right, here's two captains. So, you know, I think it was my daughter Mariah and Delena maybe. And they start picking people. And... I'm, I'm, then I'm starting, you know, I'm on a team and I'm looking at everyone left and I could see their faces like, I hope somebody picks me. And I'm not trying to bring back flashbacks from, from high school gym class to anyone, gym class, you know. But, but, you know, these kids are standing there like, oh, gee, I hope somebody, I hope I'm not last one picked. Well, listen, that's who these guys are. They're the last ones picked. They're the last ones Saul would pick. These guys weren't even missed by Saul, probably. These were the bottom of the barrel, and they come to David. David, would you be my captain, right? Would you be my captain? David's like, well, I'm going to be your captain, or nobody over here, so I guess, yeah, I'll be your captain, you know, right? He's got, David's got nobody. So he's got these 400 men that are distressed, in debt and discontent. To be stressed means to be uh, in, in a, a tight space. It means to be stressed, right? If you've ever been on an airplane, you know what it is to be stressed. If you've ever been on especially a long flight, I don't fit in the seats very well. And, you know, there's people obviously bigger than me. I don't know how 
bigger people than me fit in these, you know, taller. It doesn't matter. Just how do you fit in those seats if you're not in first class? I walk by first class thinking, you don't need that seat. Like, you could easily sit in another seat, right? And, and, and you know, they got all this leg room. They're kicking back. People are getting, and I get back there, and the two biggest guys that are on the plane are on each side of me. I'm like, come on. And then they take the elbow space, right? And then you're heading nine hours to, you know, for your first leg of the trip to Africa or something. And, and that's stressful, right? And that's what these guys, that's their life. They're stressed. They're in a tight spot. They cannot get out. And, and, and there's no place to move, no room to get around. They're, these guys are stressed. And you know, you've been there. You know people like that are just, you're so stressed out. And they show up, David, here I am, ready to serve. And in debt, these guys were in debt. It, it literally means, and there was probably a lot of this oppression came from Saul. Like, these guys, it, it literally means if they sold everything they have, they still couldn't pay what they owed. That's, that's the debt they were in. They're like oppressed, stressed, in debt. And they're discontent. That means they're bitter. They survey their lives, they look back at their lives, they look at how they've grown up, the family they've grown up in, and how they feel like they've got the short end of the stick in their life. They look at other families and say, why wasn't mom and dad, why wasn't my mom and dad like them? Why didn't I get a life that looked like that? And they're just bitter, bitter with life, bitter at what life has handed them, bitter at their own decisions that were bad, and they're just bitter. These people are stressed out, in debt, and bitter. And they show up with all this baggage to David in the cave. And David's probably thinking, wow, here we go, I guess. But he takes this band of misfits and disciples them and trains them. And they become the greatest army Israel will know that you'll read about in the Bible. These men will become the greatest men you'll read about in the Bible in terms of warriors and soldiers, faithful men. These guys become just like their captain, David. If you turn with me to chapter 2 Samuel chapter 23. We'll just read about these guys for a second. Verse 8 in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Jasheb. I'll let you guys guess what the second half is. The Tachmanite, the chief among the captains, he was called the Dino, the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. Now, he did that by himself, or did he have an, a small army? Pretty amazing. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. Right? Now we have a Dodo in the army. The Aohite, one of the three mighty men that David, with David, when he defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel retreated. 
they retreat. And what's it say about this guy? It sounds just like David because that's what David did when he saw Goliath. Everyone's retreating. It says, and this man, he arose and he attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to plunder. That's exactly what David did when he fought Goliath. Like he beat Goliath and then they went after the Philistines and plundered them. And after him was Shammah, one of the, one of the, Agi, the son of Agi, the Herorite, Her, uh, the Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field and he defended it and he killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Then the three of the 30 chief men went down to the harvest down at harvest time and came to David to the cave of Adullam. So David would frequent this cave. And the troop of Philistines encamped, encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the stronghold in the garrison. And the garrison of the Philistines was in Bethlehem. That's his hometown. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and they drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate. And they took it and they brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it for me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink of it. And these things were done by the three mighty men. David says, listen, these aren't my soldiers. God, these are yours. And he poured out that water that these men risked their lives over. David just said, man, I wish I had just some of that. That was so good when I was a kid, drinking from that well. And these guys were like, let's get it for him. He needs it. These guys were faithful. These guys loved David. They sacrificed, risked their lives for David. And they went, went after this water, and David's like, Lord, these are your men, not mine. This water's yours. And he pours it out there. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zorah, was chief of another three. And he lifted his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. And Benaniah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and he went down to him with a staff, a stick. And he wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaniah, the son of Jeho Jehoiada, did and won a name among the three mighty men. And then it goes on to name all of David's mighty men, one of which is Uriah, the Hittite. Amazing. These men, did David kill a lion? Yeah. Did his men kill lions? Yeah. Were they brave? Yeah, David was brave. They were just like their captain. 
They spent time with their captain. They learned from him. David discipled these guys. It's exactly what Jesus does. It's exactly what Jesus does. He takes whosoever's. He takes the ones that are discontent, distressed, in debt. Life has overwhelmed them. Tons of baggage, tons of, you know, past, a history. And Jesus takes men like that and women like that and assembles his kingdom, his army here on earth. People that he can share his love with. People he can take and change who they are. Turn to Revelation with me just for a second, chapter 22. Here in chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus identifies. He signs off in the book of Revelation. One of his, the, the names he uses, one of the things he identifies himself with here in verse 16 is the offspring of David. It says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And then he says this. Here's the invitation to you and I. He says, the spirit and the bride say come. That's the Holy Spirit, and that's you and I. Our lives should be lived as an invitation to the world that, you know what, Jesus Christ will accept you too. They'll, they should look at your life and say, wow, I knew who you used to be. What happened to you? Why are you different? What's changed in you? Why are you acting like that and talking like that? It should be, your life should be an invitation to the world. He says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And then he says this, let him who hears come. Let, let him who's a thirst, who's thirsty, come. And then he says, whoever desires, whoever just wants to, you can come. Take the water of life, that's eternal life, freely. Jesus Christ is the only one who has eternal life, living water. He's the only one. That's the invitation. Here's a promise, John chapter 6. Turn there with me for a second. John chapter 6. Verse 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been. He says, I'm not going to cast you out. I'm not going to cast you out. You might feel like you want to get cast out. You might feel like you've done too much. But he says, I won't cast you out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent, of my Father who sent me, that all that he has given me, I should lose 
nothing, but I should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. That's a promise. That's a promise that you'll have everlasting life and you won't get cast out. God knows the baggage you have and the mess you are and the mess I am and what I brought in and what I needed forgiveness of and from and how I needed to change. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is the greater than David. He identifies with David. Jesus says this in verse 28. Come unto me, all, ye, all you who labor and are, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me. That's the invitation. It's a command. It's an imperative that God says, come to me. Come to me. It's imperative if you want rest, right? It's almost like your kids when, they're, when, when they get a sliver, if you've had kids and they get a sliver and they're like, they, they get close to you and they want to, look what I did, but they don't want you to touch it, right? Look what I did. I want some sympathy. Stay away from me, right? But it's an imperative that you come. If you want help, if you want me to fix it, and I can, you have to come to me. That's the imperative, what Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. You have to do it. If you want rest, there's no other way you're going to find it. Nowhere else you're going to get it. Jesus says, come to me. That's the invitation. If you're laboring and you're heavy laden, if you're tired of trying to figure life out, trying to figure out what, what love is all about, what life is all about, what the future has, how to have peace and joy and rest, how to be good, how to keep up with people. If you're just tired of doing life on your own, trying to find friends and people who care, have peace in your life and purpose for your life. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. That word rest means to be refreshed, to recover, to regain strength. That's the only place you're going to find it. It's an imperative. You have to come to Jesus. You're not going to find rest or strength anywhere else. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke. You guys, I have a yoke in my office, right? Today we just have tractors with three-point hitches, right? We have Kubotas and John Deere's. But there used to be a yoke, and it would go over the necks of an ox. And there'd be usually two of them. And they would yoke up two of them because one was older, and he's teaching the younger one. And they'd go side by side in a field, and they would plow it and 
and, and, and do whatever, disc it and all the different things that they would do. Um, and Jesus says, listen, I have a yoke for you. It's different than the one you're wearing. It's different than what, you're, what you have on right now. Take that one off and put mine on because I want to teach you something. I want to bear the, the burden and the strength of your life. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly. I'm gentle and humble, right? Jesus, of all, in all the Gospels, we can learn, you know, where he was born, chose his disciples, how he was, all his teachings, his miracles, you know, being betrayed, crucified, raised the third day. This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus says, this is my heart. I'm gentle, I'm humble, you can come to me. Those are the best teachers. Anytime, you know, I, I thought of this, Bruce is here right now, but th this is the, you know, Bruce, my wife's dad, he's the type of guy that he's more concerned with, he's not worried about how long a job's gonna take. If he can take one of his grandsons with him and teach him something, he'll take extra time, tons of time. He's not worried, you know, my kids, when they're around Bruce, they're not worried about messing up, making a mistake, being ridiculed or criticized or yelled at, right? He's just patient with them. And that's what Jesus is saying. Listen, I'm not going to mock you if you mess up, or do something wrong. I'm gentle. I'm humble. I'm kind. You can trust me. I'm going to bear the burden. And when you mess up, I'm going to push harder. You can yoke right up with me. I'm going to help you. You can put your life in my hands. That's the only place you'll find rest. That's the only place you'll find peace. You can put your yoke back on and get back out in the field you were in. You're going to get worn out again. You're going to get burdened again and tired. You'll find rest for your souls. That's what, you, you need soul rest. The part of you that's searching for something is your soul wants, needs rest. It's the eternal part of you that needs help. It needs rest, and it's only going to find it in Jesus Christ. Eternal life, life that starts right now. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'm gonna help. It doesn't mean life won't get hard. It doesn't mean you're not going to go through things. It means he's going to be right there by your side, shoulder to shoulder, every second. When you yoked up two ox, man, they shared sweat. They're rubbing on each other, bumping each other. They're just breathing on each other, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. We're right next to each other. I'm with you the whole time. We're going to share life together. And I'm going to carry the, carry the burden for you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You can go to him. If you're tired. You remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are there. They were arrested and they're, they're, they're sharing with the, 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 uh, with the scribes and Pharisees. And it says that they were amazed. 
that they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned, uneducated, and untrained men, and they marveled. They were surprised, but they took knowledge that they had been with Jesus, right? That's a life that's changed. People should take knowledge. People should say, who are you? You're different. You're, you're a different person than you used to be. You're acting different. You're talking different. You're behaving different. You should be. If you're yoked up with Jesus Christ, if you're tired right now, you need to get yoked up. If you're burdened, He wants you to become, just like David's mighty men, he takes this ragtag bunch of guys who become men of valor. That's what God does. He just takes whosoever's, whosoever wills. Like, I'll take anybody. Come on in. Yoke up with me, and I'll change your life forever. Forever. So if you turn back with me to, to 1 Samuel... see this crew assembled. God is assembling. This is the seed of what will become David's kingdom. And verse 3 says, And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So David takes care of mom and dad, brings them there, his whole family, and he speaks to the king. That's You remember that David's great-grandmother is Ruth, the Moabitess. So there's a connection there. And it says David was in the stronghold. That's the, the word Masada. It's a strong place. In the King James Version, it says in the hold. It feels like maybe your life is on pause. It's on hold. Like what's happening, Lord? Certainly nothing that you've promised has been happening. You ever feel like that? God, why is my life on hold? It's on pause. Nothing's happening. God's not in a hurry. He's training David. He's teaching him as he's in the hold. As he's in these holding patterns. In our life, it feels like we're in a holding pattern, but God is working. He's working in circumstances. He's working in your heart, and he's working in people around you. And David's there. God's more concerned with making a king than having a king at this point. He's making David who he needs to be. It's almost like probably a bad movie reference. You know, if you remember Karate Kid, anybody saw that movie? Come on, some people saw that movie, right? Karate Kid, and, and, and Miyagi's got, you know, him out there, you know, he's painting the fence, he's waxing the car, he's painting the fence, and after a while, he's like, come on, am I ever going to learn karate? And then you realize you are learning, and that's what God is doing in your life. You're like, why am I in this cave? Why am I doing this? Why am I going through that? And then you realize, Oh, wow, this was God working all the time. Patience in my life and love in my life, forgiveness in my life, trust in my life. I thought I was just painting a fence or waxing a car. 
I thought, you know, what my life, what I was doing was a waste. It's on hold. When am I going to, when is this going to happen? Or when is that going to happen? And God's like, no, I'm preparing you. Keep waxing the car. Keep painting the fence. Keep doing those things that you think are dumb and redundant. If God has you doing them, keep doing it. Because he's working in your life through that stuff. He's working in your heart through that stuff. David is going from cave to stronghold to all these different places. And, 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 you know, probably part of them wondering, God, how does this work out? How is this going to work out? I don't understand. And now the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold. Now, now Gad shows up. Prophet Gad. So now David's restored to his family. He's got a small army, and then God sends him a prophet. He said to David, don't stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. And David says, listen, I killed Goliath. You ever sing that song? Saul's killed his thousands and David his ten thousands? You can't tell me what to do. No, that's not what David says. David listens to the guy. David departed and went to the forest of Hereth, right? Never become an old wineskin where you can't listen to other people, where you stop learning, where you stop hearing, where God can't teach you anything. And there's people in your life, maybe even younger than you, where they can't tell you some truth and it doesn't go from here to here but it goes from here to here and changes you and you're willing to listen can we honestly say that are we open to listening to someone I can't listen to that person they're a jerk right my kids blow me away sometimes right they'll say things I'm like Right? I'm supposed to be telling you. God will use people if we're willing to learn. Don't stop learning and listening. God wants to teach us. And when Saul heard that David and his men were with him, and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul, listen, this is normal for Saul. He was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. So Saul, there he is. He's under a tamarisk tree again. He's got a spear in his hand. He's ready to chuck it at someone. And all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, and this is horrible motivation. This is bribery and division. Here now, you Benjamites. And that's what Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So he's dividing the tribes now. Here now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Can he make you wealthy? What does he have? He's got nothing. Even the, you know, the 400 men. Look at the 400 men he's got. 
What can he do for you? And can he make you all captains of thousands and hundreds? Can he give you a promotion? What can David do for you? Look at who he is. He's living in a cave. He's running from here to... Really? Guys, come on. Look who I am. He'll never promote you. And, 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 and Saul, that's horrible motivation. And then look at... And this is so much of what God saves us from. He saves us from ourselves. You want to find your life, you need to lose it. If you want to really find your life, you need to lose it, Jesus said. And we need to be saved from ourselves because we can become so self-focused, self-motivated, and self-centered, and that's who Saul has become. He says, and so what he says, this isn't even true. He says, all of you have conspired against me. And there's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. None of it's true. None of it's true. He's, he's paranoid. And he's only thinking about himself, you know, we call that, that being a narcissist, right? You can only think about yourself. That's the worst condition to be in. It's the worst condition, and we've all been there, right? You wake up in the morning, and all you think about is me, 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 right? And then after about 10 minutes of thinking about yourself, then you're depressed the rest of the day. Oh, crud, Right? I am an idiot. Nothing is working out, right? <laughs> Everything's broken. I never catch a break. Right? And then you start making up stuff that's not even true, and that's where Saul's at. Jesus saves us from ourselves. And then here he comes. Remember from last chapter, Doeg was there. They mentioned him in verse 7 of chapter 21. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, he is a dog, who was set over the servants of Saul, and he said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And listen, he frames this verse 10. It's all truth, but he frames it in a way that's actually a lie. He says that, that basically... The high priest is against you, Saul. The, the, the uh, rabbis say that actually Doeg, as he says this, he begins to praise David. Like David, wow, what an amazing guy. Maybe he hummed the tune, right? Saul's slain his thousands. They, you know, and he's saying this stuff, and it's, and it's making Saul irate. So really, all he does is tell the truth. What he says is the truth. But he turns it into a lie because what he's trying to insinuate is that the high priest was against you, Saul. David's against you. You're right. All these people are against you. And when you think that way, you're, you can believe any lie. And so here comes the lie. It says, he inquired of the Lord for him. He prayed for him. He asked God, God, what should David do? We're not 100% sure about that, but he probably did. He gave him provisions. That happened. 
He gave him bread. He gave him holy bread. And he gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. That's true. But did it mean the guy was against Saul? No, but that, that's his insinuation. How people can manipulate and frame something in a way that's totally wrong. And that's what this guy does. To the intent probably to get a promotion. And so the king called sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, and the priests who were with, who were in Nob, and they came to the king, and Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, that you have given him bread and a sword, and you have inquired of the Lord for him? that he should rise against me and to lie in wait as it is this day. Well, that's not what Doeg said, but that's what Doeg insinuated. It's not what, it's a lot of, that's all truth, but where, where Saul went with it was wrong. That you're, he's rising against me, lying in wait this day, right? And he's a good pastor, right? He prays for David, he gives him bread, gives him a sword, he equips him for the battle, right? And so Abimelech, he wants to give Saul a little front end alignment. He answered the king and said, who among all your servants is as faithful as David? He's your most faithful servant. And the king's son-in-law who goes at your bidding, he does whatever you ask. A hundred foreskins of the Philistines, he'll give you two hundred. He's honorable in your house. Did I just then begin to inquire to God for him? Now, I've been praying for him. Every time he comes to me, I ask the Lord for him. Far be it from me, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, either little or much. And that's the truth. You know why? Because David lied. David did not tell the truth when he went to Nob. He lied to the priest. He says, I'm on the king's business. I had to make haste. I didn't have time for, to grab a sword. I just, my troops are around the corner. I just need some bread. So he literally knew nothing. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your, all your father's house. Wow. Saul, you're radical. And the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. That's not true. And because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me, but the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. Good for them. They didn't do it. They didn't do it when he asked, he says, all right, we got to kill Jonathan. They're like, are you nuts, Saul? What are you, crazy? And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. 85 men, one by one with a sword. Well, these guys were like lined up. I don't, how did that happen? 85 men. How long did that take? 
to kill 85 men with a sword. When do you get tired? And also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men, women, children, nursing infants, oxen, donkeys, sheep, with the edge of the sword. Everything that Saul wouldn't do to the Amalekites, to Agag, to the enemies of God's people and the enemies of God, everything he wouldn't do to them, he did to the priests of God. He had no respect for the ephod. And we see at the end of Saul's life, as he's inquiring of the Lord, he's wondering what to do. The Philistines were coming on him. God wouldn't speak to him. It was over. He had no respect to hear from God. He quit listening to God. And so God quit speaking to him. And then he goes out and seeks a witch to conjure up a demon to get direction. Saul's in a really bad place, and it's getting worse and worse. Now the son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. So one priest escaped, and now God brings David a priest too. Got a prophet, a priest, and a small army. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. And David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. David takes full responsibility. He owns all of it. He looks back at his mistakes and says, man, I messed up when I lied. I shouldn't have lied. I mentioned it last week. David would write in Psalm 119, 29. He says, remove from me the way of lying. I hurt people when I lie. Can't keep track of what I told this person and what I told that person. I had no idea the repercussions of my lie and how it was going to impact and affect other people. And this whole city was killed. Everyone was destroyed. One priest escaped and he ran to David. But a tough lesson for David and he owns all of it. He didn't say, oh, you know what, Doag, that guy's a jerk too. Or, you know, but he says, you know what, it was my fault. I shouldn't have lied. But David says this, Stay with me and don't fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me, you'll be safe. That's the reality. If you're in Jesus Christ, listen, you have an adversary, the devil, who walks around as a roaring lion seeking whom, whom he may devour. You've got to stay close to Jesus. He's a liar. His ministers transform themselves into angels of light. He takes the word of God and he twists it. kill. That's what he did with Eve. He lied, and it killed Eve. It killed Adam, and we're suffering the repercussions from that. But he says, stay with me. Do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me, you'll be safe. There's safety in Jesus Christ. He loves you, and he loves me. Lord, we're thankful, God, for your word, for the truth of it, God, that you can take a ragtag bunch people like us with tons of baggage 
and a past that can be sorted and messed up. And you say, come to me. Yoke up with me. I'm not going to shame you or humiliate you. All I want to do is forgive you and walk in this life with you. And that's what we want to do, Lord. We, we were able, and David is able to taste and see that you're good. Where else would we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. This world's got nothing for us. So we're thankful for your love, Lord. We give you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're tired, if you're weary, the world's putting the squeeze on you, you're in that airplane, it's like you've got nowhere to turn. You can turn one place. Jesus has come to me. If anyone needs prayer, come on up. We can pray. If you don't know Jesus Christ, he wants to take your burden. He wants to walk through this life with you. You can come up, and that can change today. You can yoke up with him today. If not, have a great week.